0: Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about the great city? We'll be in this final chapter now for the next uh, three weeks, counting today. And this is a surprise chapter for many people. In chapter 3, it says that Nineveh turned from their evil ways and their violence. Who would not want to see a city turn away from its evil ways and its violence? Isn't that exactly what we pray for and long for in this city, Worcester? And what you'd expect would be to read this as the ending of the story. And Jonah returned to Israel rejoicing in all that God had done. Instead, we hear these words. Jonah was greatly displeased and he became angry. So it brings up this deep theological question. What? Perhaps the most powerful city in the world of its day. And Jonah had been used of God to bring a remarkable turnaround in the whole city. And yet he's so angry with God, he's ready to die. He'd rather die than watch God spare Nineveh. And if you have ever had feelings towards anyone and fantasized, about harm or ruin coming to them, then you are Jonah. If that's happened at a traffic light, (laughs) on a highway, someone at your last church, someone at work, we are Jonah. And so we can learn from his struggling with God's grace, the inconvenience of God's mercy. But before we get into that, before we unpack Jonah's anger, we want to step back and learn a few more things that this story tells us about the primary character of the story, which is not Jonah. We've learned it's certainly not a whale. It's God himself. And there are two things that come up at this point that I think are worth noting. The first is we see in these final two chapters of this story God's concern for both nations and individuals that same god that calls nations to follow him and directs the seats of authority in this world also focuses with such intent on jonah we'll explore more next week these series of questions and things that god does very specifically in jonah's life to give him an opportunity to grow the second thing we see about god is the theme verse of the book of Jonah, where Jonah says, You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's the theme of the book of Jonah. The lesson that Jonah's life is meant by the telling of it to bring to the children of Israel and to us today. Now, what's amazing about that is that the theme verse of the book is presented as a complaint, <laughs> Jonah is complaining to God. And what's amazing about that is that this is exactly the quality that God uses to brag about himself. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 33 and 34, we have this encounter with Moses and God where Israel has fallen into sin while Moses was first up on the mountain with God, and now he's come back up, and Moses beseeches God on behalf of Israel, and God relents. And then Moses says, God, show me your glory. And when God declares the thing that is most glorious about me, this is what he says, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So think about this. The very thing that God says is central to what is most glorious about him is the thing that Jonah uses as an accusation against God in his anger. And there are definitely times in all of our lives for the very things, that are most glorious about God are the things that drive us crazy and make us angry because everything in our spirit is fighting against what God's character, God's nature wants to bring into that moment. And that's what's happening here. So with that in mind, let's go forward and look at the source of Jonah's anger. What's interesting here and what is revealed is that Jonah did not flee to Tarshish for fear of going into this great city, even though we've compared going into Nineveh as the same as in World War II, jumping into the middle of Berlin during the height of the Third Reich's power and calling them back to God, or even today, going into the very country of Iraq where ISIL is now in control of a large portion of that. By the way, the very same country that Nineveh of Jonah's time was in and calling ISIL to give up their evil ways. That's what Jonah was asked to do, to go to Nineveh. But it wasn't fear. He fled because he knew God was willing to forgive, and he was not. Where is that coming from? I want to suggest a couple of things. First, I think Jonah demonstrates a form of racism. He sees the Jewish people as a step above everybody else in the world. They are God's chosen people. He saw his Jewish people as more worthy of God's love. That word love that that Jonah says when he says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's a very important word in the Hebrew. It's keseth. It's God's covenant love. God's saving love. It's the love that the nation of Israel saw as theirs alone. But he knew that's the kind of love that the God who was calling him to Nineveh was willing to share. See, So there's a, a bit of racism, I think, in there. And then the second is nationalism. He loved Israel. And Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire were the sworn enemies. And we know and have mentioned several times in this series that in about 40 or 50 years, Assyria will come in and will totally wipe out the northern kingdom. That's where Jonah is. Those 10 tribes will disappear and never be heard from ever again. So Nineveh is the sworn enemy. And God is asking Jonah to be an instrument of the survival of his enemy. He wanted this enemy to experience calamity, but this God, the God that he serves, is the one that withholds calamity on the repentant heart. But I think there's a third area that underlies the whole thing, and it's revealed in the desperation of Jonah's anger. He's not just mad. He is so disillusioned that he literally has given up the desire to live. And I think that that betrays a third factor in his anger with God, and that is idolatry. Jonah had divided loyalties. Now, in preparing for this series, I listened to an excellent sermon by Tim Keller on this chapter. And Tim Keller links Jonah's attitude at this moment to James chapter 1, verse 8. Let's say this together. A double-minded man is unstable in all that he does. How do you explain the fact that Jonah, in chapter 2, praises God for his deliverance and obeys, and then just days later is ready to take his whole life? This huge emotional instability. Well, James says the cause of that type of instability in a man is being double-minded. That word, double-minded, the Greek word is dipsychos. It means two souls or competing affections. Double-minded, for me as a translation, means more I'm confused. I don't know which way to go. But this is more about passion, about loyalty. Uh, I think a worthy translation of this is actually double-hearted, In other words, the person whose affections are in competition. They have affection for God, and yet there are other things in their life that bring meaning and fulfillment that compete with God. And whatever that is, whatever that other pull of our heart is, whatever it is, the Bible calls that an idol. Whatever it is that gives me meaning and fulfillment, and purpose, to the point where you take it away from me, and I don't think that life is worth living, that's an idol. That's a God. And something is competing in Jonah for his affection for God that this experience takes away, and what he discovers is that because of that, he's lost his will He's lost his meaning. And what's amazing about that is that Jonah is actually saying to the God who is the only source of true meaning in life, I have no meaning. He's saying to the God who was the only one worthy of living for, I have no purpose to live. What is it that makes Jonah a double-hearted man. I found this video that I think underscores it in a pretty uh, effective way, so just watch it for a moment.
1: I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. Well, you would think they were crazy if you didn't understand their culture and their religion. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies, they wore these ridiculous costumes, they chanted, they danced, they they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. You don't really relate, do you? Let's try it again. I was watching TV the other day, and this show comes on with these religious fanatics. They were crazy. See, that's just the thing. They were worshipers of idols, and they took things to extremes. They painted their bodies. They wore these ridiculous costumes. They chanted. They danced. They they made sacrifices to their idols. They had built these enormous temples to worship their idols in. It seemed like their entire existence climaxed into this one scenario, this one over-the-top act of worship. Idol worship. It's not just about golden calves anymore.
0: (laughs) Now, I just want to say, go Pats, but... (laughs) An idol can be any good thing that becomes a supreme thing in our lives. When it moves from being a pleasure to an emotional necessity, to something that gives our life meaning and purpose, even good things become idols. And that was true of Jonah. You see, there was nothing wrong with loving your kin. You should love your kin. There's nothing wrong with loving your nation. You should love your nation. But when those become your idols, and I think that's what we're seeing here for Jonah, his love for his own people and his love for his own nation led him to the point where it turned into something dark. His love for his kin turned into disdain for those that were not like him. And so just loving his kind became bigotry And racism his love for his nation turned from just wanting to see God bless that nation to also wanting to see God judge and bring calamity upon other nations see an idol is most often something that is good but it becomes supreme what's your idol There's so many places I want to go and play with these ideas with you right now. I'm thinking about uh, the times I've heard Christian Americans saying things like, I think that we should just turn the whole Middle East into glass. I remember I I used to hear people saying that in anger about Al-Qaeda. We should just turn the whole Middle East, we should turn Iran into glass. And for a while I didn't get what that meant. And somebody had to explain it to me and they said, well, when when you drop a nuke, on sand the sand turns into glass what we're saying is we should just bomb the hell out of them I'm telling you if you're saying that and you think you're saying it in the name of God that's not this God this God's bragging rights are that he is slow to anger and he relents from sending calamity you're worshiping a different God. Our love for our nation becomes more than a good thing, it becomes a dark thing. Let's take it down to more the personal level. Have you ever gotten to the point where you have actually despaired to go on living? And I'm sure in a room this size, there are people that understand that experience we're actually willing to consider ending our life and somehow our faith in God is not influencing it. And what that is telling you is that there is something else that has been taken from you that fills a place in your life that only your creator was meant to have. God's still there, but you haven't found your meaning in God, in your relationship with Him and His purpose for your life. And so something else mattered so much to you that when it was gone, you had no reason to go on living. Many of us can't relate to that level of desperation, but all of us have experienced disillusion for the very same reason. Something that brought meaning to us. A relationship, a possession, an ability, a hobby, a passion, reputation, acceptance, money. All these things can be good. They can be instruments for God's glory. But they can also become priorities above God. This is what we see in Jonah. And if we look carefully, we see it in all of our lives. Next week, we're going to really look at how God directly confronts Jonah's prejudice and Jonah's idolatry. But I just want to touch on a couple of things related to curing our double-heartedness. The first thing I want to say is that one way to look at your spiritual journey in Christ is the progressive journey of God revealing with each new experience in your life another idol, another source of meaning and affection that competes with Him that you have to crucify. Curing our double-heartedness is a process that we have to accept, and we see that in Jonah. I mean, chapter 2, Jonah is doing pretty good finally. Right? He comes back to God. He obeys. He's preaching in power. He's preaching in such power that he doesn't need 40 minutes like me and Lou and Paul need. He needs one sentence, 40 days, and Nineveh will be turned over. God speaks with such power through that, that a whole city and region is revived. But yet, here we see right after that, Jonah experiences another wall. And before we say, oh man, that that guy's just a mess, yeah, that's us. Each new experience reveals the next competitor for God's affection, meaning, and purpose in your life. Now, some of us have stalled in our spiritual journey. Some of you, for a while, were going great guns, and you stalled. You haven't grown. You don't hear God's voice as much as you used to. You're not experiencing that sense of purpose and joy in God. And I'm guessing that what's happened in some of your lives is that you've reached an idol that you're not willing to deal with. There's something that you finally come to in this process of sanctification that's so important in your life that you're not willing to let go. You may even find yourself getting a little angry at God because you know it's there and you're unwilling to relent. You may find God wanting to move in one way and you say, No, this is wrong and I'm mad enough to die. We have to look at this as the process, just like we see in Jonah. He's no different than the rest of us. We have these moments where sin will be revealed, God will reach out to us in grace, we'll confess it, we'll put it to death, and as life goes on, God will bring the next thing over and over again. God relentless in His pursuit of our sanctification. So that's the life, and it's worth our understanding that. And second, and and this is not profound, Because we say it all the time. Well, Well, okay. It's familiar, but profound nonetheless. That's better. It's all about grace. What Jonah's struggling with is the full import, the full reality of God's grace. That all of us are equally in desperate need of it, and God is willing in equal measure to bestow it on any who would come to Him and turn to Him. Right? The more we understand that, the more we can set aside our idols. And the more we can relent from our anger and our desire to see other people judged and seeing calamity brought on their life. And the more we can submit them to a good and gracious God. It's all about God's grace. And so, We're going to end here with one final thought, and we're going to pick it up next week and look at these three questions that God brings Jonah through. But I just have this thought, and I want you to really spend some time thinking about it. Whatever gives your life meaning other than Jesus Christ is a competing God in your life. We must be single-hearted in our devotion to God. Let's say that. Whatever gives your life meaning other than Jesus Christ is a competing God in your life. We must be single-hearted in our devotion to Him. I want to tell you that that competing God in your life will disappoint you. It will bring you to disillusion. It will bring you to ruin if you choose to continue to serve it rather than surrendering to Christ alone. The Apostle Paul states it so beautifully, and again, so familiar. For me, to live is Christ. To die is even better. Say that with me. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Is that true? What affections, what things bring you meaning and fulfillment in life that compete with Christ? Let's surrender them right now in prayer. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Just allow, as we sit quietly, the Holy Spirit to bring to your heart and your mind those things that right now are competing for your singular affection, your single-heartedness for Christ alone. And remember what we learned last week. The one thing you should never fear is turning to God for mercy and forgiveness. So confess it, let go of it. Father, I, even as I ask you to take my own passions, my own idols, I confess it's an act of faith because it's so hard to emotionally detach from things that I've become so accustomed to finding fulfillment in and purpose. And so I'm even asking for your help to let go of them, for your help to see them as you do, and to embrace you more fully. Father, by faith, I. Say, for me to live is Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.